Oh, good morning, Mars Hill. It's so good to see you, whether you're here in the room or you're tuning in over live stream or you're grabbing a cup of coffee. It's so great to see college students back filling up this section as classes are getting started back this week. Friends, let us stand and let us have the Holy Spirit posture our hearts into a position for worship as we prepare to celebrate and sing of the mystery of our faith. This is from Romans chapter 16. It says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the commands of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be forevermore glory through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let us give glory to the Lord as we sing of the mystery of faith. We sing this hymn together celebrating all that our Christ has accomplished. Sing, come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. For he the theme of heaven's praises robed in frail humanity. For in our longing and in our darkness now the light of life has come so look to christ who condescended took on flesh to ransom us when we sing of the incarnate christ sing come behold the wondrous mystery he the perfect Son of Man, for in His living and in His suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. So see the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man, Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law in him we stand come on we sing of the crucifixion together sing come behold the wondrous mystery christ the lord upon the tree in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory oh see the price of our redemption see the father's plan unfold bringing many sons to glory grace unmeasured love untold We're so thankful for that grace this morning. Every day we're thankful. Come on, we sing and celebrate the resurrection. Sing, come behold the wondrous mystery. Slain by death, the God of life. 
But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord. He is alive. Oh, what a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes oh what a foretaste of deliverance how unwavering our hope for christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes Oh, we sing in anticipation of that. Amen. We celebrate that mystery together. The great mystery of faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Amen and amen. Well, friends, we are uh, in a season of epiphany. We, uh, we have uh, left the Advent season, and we're now entering into a new book study together. We're going to be going through 1st through 3rd John, and I love that as you read through what the Apostle John has for God's people in both his gospel and in his letters, uh, we see so much language uh, that is used to convey uh, orthodox belief in Christ, to fight against the heresies of the world that tell us this is who they think God is or this is who we should think God is, but it gives us a, a benchmark to help understand him clear and to understand what orthodox faith really is. And so uh, just as the Apostle John was doing that for the early church as he was writing his gospel and his letters, uh, the same thing uh, was accomplished and echoed by the Council of Nicaea as they uh, sought to codify uh, faith and codify a system of beliefs uh, that was orthodox, fighting against the heresies of their day. And so uh, we want to do something different during this series as we go through first through third John, uh, where we recite uh, the Nicene Creed. And so this is a creed that is used. It came from that event where they solidified this is orthodox belief in who Christ, who our God is. And so uh, this is something that may be new for some of you. We're not doing this to try to, you know, be one thing or another or to try to uh, connect to something outside of anything. Uh, but this is a way for us to connect to the past uh, here in the present as we look forward to the future, uh, celebrating and rejoicing with uh, the eternal church. Amen. So friends, let us recite this boldly, declaring to our own hearts and to each other, this is what we believe. We believe in one God the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. 
For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. For we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Christian church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen and amen. Friends, we know the Spirit of God is drawing us into himself this morning. So no matter what is going on in our hearts, no matter what baggage we're walking in here with, we can cast our cares upon him and find rest for our souls. So we confess to him, we sing, come ye sinners. Sing, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore Jesus ready stands to save you full of pity love and power I will rise and go to Jesus he will embrace me in his arms yes he will and in the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. He says, come ye thirsty, come ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty, glorify true belief and True repentance, every grace that brings. He says, "Come ye weary, oh come ye weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall." Don't miss this right here. If you tarry until you're better. Come at all, we arise. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. And in the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Feel him prostrate in the garden, on the ground your maker lies, on the bloody tree behold him, sinner will this not suffice for low and calm. 
God ascended and pleads the merit of His blood. So venture on Him, venture on Him, adventure holy. Let no other trust in truth. I will rise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. Yes, he will. And in the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are. 10,000 charms. We sing that again. We arise. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. And in the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. Friends, we sing that chorus again together to encourage one another in the faith that we can find rest for our souls in him, the one who welcomes us with open arms. We sing. I will rise and go to Jesus, for he will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear oh, there are 10,000 charms. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. Savior, 
together this morning because of that one truth that you are with us. You comfort us, you protect us, you guide us, you lead us, you love us. And so this morning as we just sing those words, as we resonate with the feeling of being with you and with one another, we say thank you. We say thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the experience of walking by faith with you in the life that you have created. Thank you for the opportunity to sit with you, know you, be loved by you, and live in your light. And this morning, as we just sit and resonate, as we just sit and meditate on these truths, we say thank you. We love you. We want to continue to be with you day after day after day. Teach us. Oh, sweet Jesus, teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. My name is Chris Emmon. I'm one of the local elders. And, um, you know, sometimes you just have a favorite passage of Scripture. So today we get to read one of my favorite passages of Scripture. 
And uh, it wasn't probably till later, I've studied First John for most of my life, but it wasn't probably till later in the last few years that I've really begun to appreciate the value of these words. So let me read for us First John chapter 4, verses 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, I spoke there. And then we're going to look at the very last verse in First John. First John 1 begins like this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you that our joy may be complete. And the very last verse is, little children, keep yourself from idols. Praise be the reading of God's Word this morning. Well, good morning, Mars Hill. And Happy New Year to you. To remind ourselves of who we are in Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. That is who you are in Christ, and John is going to be teaching us through the next three letters, first, second, and third John, of what it means to be called out of darkness into light, to be a people or community or fellowship of God's saints living the authentic Christian life. We are starting a new series in um, what is the the, three set of my favorite letters, or fancy word for it is epistles, in the New Testament. Uh, John speaks to us in such a way that is both very simple and yet very rich and complex and deep. And we're going to be doing so going line by line, passage by passage. If you're new to Mars Hill, Uh, This is typically the way that we teach. We pray about and choose a letter or a book or a narrative from Scripture that we believe God, the Holy Spirit, wants us as a church to really concentrate on, and then we go line by line through it, a hearing, in this case, from the apostle, not from me, not from Jack, not from any of the teaching pastors like Tommy, but from the Holy Spirit through the writings of, in this case, John. And one of the reasons we do this is because we want to retrieve the practice that we see in the early church, that an apostle would write a letter, and then that letter would be delivered to a church, and then the person who delivered the letter would read it and then explain any questions that the people had. So for example, uh, Paul writes the letter Ephesus from the city of Rome. Paul hands over the letter to the Ephesians to a guy named Tychicus, and he travels to Ephesus, delivers it to him, and reads it. And we believe that this is the way that these letters were meant to be uh, explored together as a community. So we're going to be doing first, second, and third John over the next few months. You might be thinking, well, three books over the next few months, how are we going to do that? Second and third John are kind of like chapters. Third John is really short. You can go ahead and look at it. It's probably only one page in your book. You could read second John in the time it takes to the barista to make you a cappuccino, right? Third John, you're watching football. Just when the commercial comes on, pop open third John. You can read through it two times, and then bam, we're back watching the game, right? It's very, very short. But uh, that shouldn't communicate to us that the theology that we're going to learn is thin. 
Even though these books are short and condensed and compact, they're thick and they're very rich. They are at once simple and straightforward and delicate and also very deep. They're bottomless. In them, we're going to explore incredibly rich theology, especially in, in one verse, one of the shortest books of the, or the shortest verses in the Bible, yet one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's three words in English, God is love. We could spend months unpacking what that one simple statement means. We're going to find it in 1 John. We're going to um, explore convicting practices. John's going to tell us if we, have no, if we say we have no sin, then we make Christ out to be a liar. Uh, we're going to, to experience soothing assurance of faith that if we confess sins, he being Christ is faithful and just to forgive us. Uh, we're going to hear powerful warnings against the dangers of heresy. John's going to be very adamant. Do not listen to people who deny that Jesus physically came in the flesh, that it, had you met him in his earthly ministry, you could shake his hand and he would pull you in and he would embrace you. He was truly man and truly God, as we recited in the Nicene Creed. In fact, you'll notice as we recite the Nicene Creed, language of that creed is drawing very heavily from John, both from John's gospel and from John's letter. God from God, light from light. Uh, we're also going to hear very strong calls to authentic discipleship in fellowship of the church. And we're going to hear all of this couched in what I believe is essentially the thesis statement of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which is the last verse in 1st John, which is why we read that. You might be thinking, like, are we just going to skip the letter all the way to the end? No. John buries the lead, as the saying goes, all the way to the very last verse of his first letter. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Everything we're going to learn in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is going to be couched in this warning against idolatry. Little children, keep yourself from idols. I don't want us to get confused here, right? This isn't a children's book uh, when we think about it. He's not saying kids, as in this is for like 12 and under. Uh, John envisions the people that were followers and saints in the first century to be his spiritual children. And so the case is for us today. We are, in a sense, the spiritual children, spiritual kids, or great, 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 great grandchildren of John. And he warns us here, keep yourself from idols. The last words in 1 John, but the whole letter is going to lead up to that, and the two letters following it are going to echo it. Do you want a God who is love? John's going to say, then keep yourself from idols that are hate. Do you want to know your true sinful state before a holy God? Then keep yourself away from idols that are going to lie to you and soothe you and tell you peace, peace when there is no peace. Do you want assurance of faith if sin's forgiven? Then keep yourself from idols that blame you and shame you and lie to you that you are too far gone in sin for holy God to forgive you? Do you want surety of orthodoxy, which is a fancy word for right and true beliefs about God? Well, then keep yourself from the idols of false gods. And do you want spiritual growth in the community of believers? Well, then keep yourself from the idols of this world that distract us, that demand from us our time and talent and treasure, that deform our loves and actions into sin. John's gonna talk about all of these things framed in this warning, little children, keep yourself from idols. So if that's the case, I think we need to begin by asking a really simple and basic question. Well, what is 
Idolatry, exactly. If I had to put it in one really short sentence, idolatry is this, this ascribing anything of God that is not God. Or I should say like this, ascribing anything of God to anything that is not God. Does that make sense? So looking at something in the created order and saying uh, that is truth, or that is my ultimate source of love, or that is where I draw my meaning, or that is good or right, and it's the ultimate good or right. So for example, is the creator of God all things? If your answer is no, like in the ancient world, it's Ra or it's Brahma or something like that. This is a theological form of idolatry. Is God the pinnacle authority of what is right and wrong, moral and immoral, good or bad? No, that's our philosophies, or no, that's me. Well, then that kind of a form is ethical idolatry. Is God our ultimate source of power, safety, and security? If your answer is no, it's the nations, it's our government, it's our military, it's our chariots and horses, as they struggled with the Old Testament, right? That's a national idolatry. Um, is God deserving of your greatest attention? No, I am. And, and the way I do that is I build my fame in digital spaces, carefully curating online a profile that I can gain more followers and so gain more attention and draw attention to myself. Well, that is a selfish idolatry. You, you are your own idol. Uh, is, the great, is God my greatest source of love? No, it's my spouse or it's my partner. It's the sexual experiences that I have. Well, this is an affective idolatry. Idols can be made of so many different things. Describing divinity to created things, to demand from creation what only the creator can give you, whether it's material objects or systems or ideas or people, will naturally lead you to devote yourself to them or it or they to the created order rather than the creator. You begin to sacrifice your time and your talent and your treasure to things rather than the one who has created all things. So in the ancient world, when men and women crafted stone idols, when they traveled to see them in their temples, when they prayed to them, when they sacrificed money and crops and animals and even people, they were committing idolatry. But at what cost? I think one of the most insightful um, readings of idolatry in Scripture that I've ever come across comes from a biblical scholar named G.K. Beale. And he said, there is a general principle all across Scripture, but particularly in the Old Testament, that communicates to us that the longer we worship something, the more we begin to resemble it. Let me say that again, because this is going to be really important to this series. The longer or the more you worship something, the deeper you are devoted to something, the more you begin to resemble that thing. So let's take, for example, in the ancient world, an idol. I have a picture here of a stone idol. And I want you to look at the idol as I read a warning against idolatry from Psalm 115. And consider in the back of your mind also, the longer you worship an idol, the more you begin to resemble it, to act like it, to be like it. Here's the warning from the psalmist in 115, 4 through 7. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but don't speak. Eyes, but don't see. They have ears, but don't hear. Noses, but don't smell. They have hands, but don't feel. Feet, but don't walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat.
Look at this idol here for a moment and ask yourself, what can it tell you about life and truth and beauty? What does it see to discern between good and evil, peace and injustice? What can this idol hear of your praise in happiness and pleas for help? What can this idol smell of your incense of prayers to it? What can this idol embrace you with? To where can this idol lead you through uncertainty or anxiety or fear or death? Notice too how important speech is to the psalmist. He brings it up twice. He says they have mouths but do not speak. And then again, he says they do not make a sound in their throat. Our idols in life can't speak truth to us because they're mute. They can't discern for us what is beautiful from ugly and what is right from wrong because they're blind. Your idols don't hear you, they're deaf. They can't smell the incense of your prayers or sacrifices of time and talent and treasure. That's not sweet to them because they don't have sense to smell. They can't embrace you in your sorrows. They have hands, but no touch. They can't lead you to flourishing through dark valleys. They're immobile. Their feet are stuck to the ground. Ultimately, the problem with idols is that they don't represent truth, and therefore they can't proclaim truth. And that's a red flag for any idol. One of the ways you can discern whether or not something is an idol in your life is to ask yourself, does this represent truth? And can it proclaim truth to me? Or is it blind and deaf to truth, unable to know truth, let alone speak it to you? So why would you want to become like one of these things? The answer is, well, you don't. But hear what scripture says about idolatry. Continuing in verse 115, verse eight, those who make them idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. So it doesn't matter if you don't want to be like what you worship, you eventually self-consciously become like what you worship. Blind, deaf, immobile to truth. And you might object and say like, well, the psalmist said those who make idols become like them. I don't make idols, even if I admit to worshiping them. Well, two things. One, read it again. Those who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. So you don't necessarily have to make the idol to begin to become like it. You only need to trust in them. And if there's idols in our culture, which there are, and you trust in them, you are becoming like that idol. But more than that, you do make idols whether or not you realize it. Most of the idols in our culture are not visible to the naked eye. They're invisible. And they most often are manufactured when we follow our heart. This is the command that we are culturally conditioned to obey in our society. If our society had a set of 10 commandments, near the very top is, you deserve to be happy, so follow your heart. What you feel on the inside, bring to the outside. What you want, pursue it at all costs. Otherwise, you're not being your authentic self and you are doomed to unhappiness. Follow your heart. But the Christian faith says, time out, friend. You don't want to go that route. It's not the problem of following desires per se. It's that your desires are affected by sin. And it's, it's not, it's, the problem is not wanting to follow one's heart. It's just that before God can circumcise your heart, can create a flesh heart out of heart of stone, before he can have lordship over your heart, 
your affections are always going to drive you back into idolatry. The way that John Wesley put it was like this. Our hearts were seized by legions of vile affections. And only somebody from the 18th century can put it so pointedly like that. it's, It's not that there's one problem with your heart. It's that there are legion, an array, myriad, many problems with the desires of your heart. And so consequently, as John Calvin would have agreed, the mind, he says, is a perpetual idol factory. That to follow your desires is to concoct in your mind all of the idols that match all of the, the you know, uh, incorrect or wrong uh, desires of the heart. And then we begin to worship the idols of our minds driven by the fallen desires of our heart and rob God of his glory. Idolatry is one of the central focuses of a fallen world, and it is the inverse of what God intended or designed to begin with. Like, Christianity is not dualism. We're not dualistic. There's not this cosmic battle of balance between good and evil. The ultimate end for the enemy, his ultimate goal is, is, uh, is not to see like this, this balance. He wants to usurp God. Like, he, he doesn't want there to be a, a bounce. He wants good to be gone forever at any cost possible. And if one of the ways, or one of the things that his image creator, his image bears us, were designed to do is to glorify him by finding all of our meaning and purpose and value, by finding truth and ultimate love in him, he will stop at nothing to divert your attention, even a millimeter away from worship to God, to anything other than him. Right? This, is, this is what the temptation of the Lord Jesus is communicating to us at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, right? What does Satan want? Worship. Who is the ultimate idol in this world? Him. And any other idol is just an offshoot of them. And because of our fallen nature, because of our fallen condition, uh, our hearts uh, desire the things that he produces. In fact, because of sin, we're able to produce our own idols. Uh, human nature was designed to worship God. That is, that is our default mode, and sin has caused it so that we would worship anything but him, right? And this is true even in a, a secular age. I mean, you can't think that you'll escape idolatry because you're skeptical of faith or that you disbelieve in the supernatural, that you're somehow objective when it comes to spirituality and therefore you're immune to idolatry. Uh, A, there's no such thing as religious neutrality. Um, We're all trying to reconnect to something that is transcendent and beyond us, outside of us. That is what religion means. It's two words smashed together. Re, which means again, and ligare, we've all got them, ligaments, to connect. Religion means to reconnect. Well, what are we reconnecting to? Something we've lost in the past and we're groping around. Every single human being is religious in that sense. So no one's neutral. And there's certainly not an absence of spirituality in the world. So just because we live in a secular society doesn't mean we're not idol worshipers. In fact, I think it's worse. We don't know that we're idol worshipers. Like at least if you go to other parts of the world today and you were a believer, you could go to your neighbor and say, hey, that idol that you get up to at the crack of dawn to sacrifice food or money to, uh, that's not God. 
And there's a tangible material thing that you can literally point to and say, that thing is not God. But for us, it's, it's far more subtle, far more subtle. Uh, we, we worship things that you can't see. We worship things that you experience. You can't quite put your finger on it, right? Leslie Newbingen observed the secularizing changes of our world, and he concluded this along these lines of what we're talking about. What has come into being is not a secular society, but a pagan society. Not a society devoid of public images or icons or idols, but a society which worship gods which are not God, the immaterial. We are idolaters, every single one of us. We worship the created rather than the creator, the things made rather than the one who made all things. And the problem with this is what people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. And that is that principle that G.K. Beale brings up to us. What people revere, what they worship, he really liked the letter R, okay? So if I could change it a little bit here. What people worship, they revere. Or what people worship, they resemble. And you've only got two options. You worship the created order, then you resemble it to your ruin, or you worship God and you resemble him to your restoration. There's, there's only one of two spaces you can go here. Because idolatry deforms us as image bearers, created to hear and see and handle the gospel, into these things that are like the idols we worship, blind and death and unfeeling to the gospel and the gospel's ultimate revelation, which is the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why John is so adamant that we keep ourselves from idols. And it's gonna be the theme for this book. And I think in a very, very subtle way, and you gotta pay really close attention, he actually sets up this idolatry theme in the first four verses, which we're gonna read. That was the introduction, ha <laughs> ha. 1 John 1, 1 through 4. I want you to pay attention, very close attention to the senses, hearing, sight, touch. Pay attention to those words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, in parentheses, Life was made manifest and we've seen it, testify to you and proclaim to you an eternal life which was with the Father, was made manifest to us. Can't wait to get it out. That which we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write these things so that our joy may be complete. Lots there what does this have to do with idolatry? Let's contract this a bit. I'm get, we're gonna come back to that parentheses part later. He's gonna repeat some of these things. And so I wanna contract it to focus in on the senses to see what this has to do with idolatry. Let's read verse one and the first part of three again and see if you can see where he's going with this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. Did you see those key words? What are they? Let's put them up in color to make it simple, right? Here's the cheat sheet. Heard, seen, touched. And in that specific order, we heard, we saw, we touched. Well, who has heard and seen and touched? He's saying we, and who is we for John? It's the apostles. 
So let's throw up on the screen our keywords so far to make sure we're tracking. We've got heard, seen, touched, seen, heard. Who is it? The apostles. I found photographs of them so you can actually see what they look like. Um, <laughs> so be on the front page of the New York Times uh, next Sunday, working some things out with the editor just to make sure we're, this is kosher. So side note, I, I want to go on a little tangent here for a second. Like, why touching? Why, why touching? Because if, if, uh, if, if you see what is John doing here, what's he doing here? Uh, pe- people that are familiar with ancient Jewish writing, what is he creating? Kakaism, right? A chiastic structure. He starts with A, B, C, B, A, which means he's drawing your attention somewhere. What's he drawing your attention to? Touching. It's not that hearing and seeing are unimportant. It's that there's something special about touching. What is special about touching? 